This week's TribCast is sponsored by CPS Energy. What will cities of the future look like? Join us in San Antonio for an enriching two-day learning experience with diverse leaders driving creative solutions for modern cities. More at cityofthefuture.io. And the Raise Your Hand Texas Foundation is excited to present For the Future, a series of more than 40 candidate forums and town halls leading up to the 2020 primary election. Find an event near you at raiseyourhandtexas.org. Hello and welcome to the special pollster edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Ross Ramsey. I'm joined this week by Josh Blank, Research Director for the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Jim Henson, head of the Texas Politics Project and co-director of the poll, and Darren Shaw, a government professor at UT Austin and the other co-director of the poll. As always, we'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. Um, so let's just dive right into this and to start with the presidential, Senate, and um, I guess impeachment folds into this as well, wherever you guys want to dive into this thing. How's the presidential race look? Ooh. President us. <laughs> so, many, so many levels to deal with. Well, I, I guess let's uh, maybe work chronologically from the primary uh, forward. So uh, as we've been doing, uh, we've included a Democratic primary um, item here for those of you who are methodologically inclined. Um, these are people who stated that uh, they intended to participate in the Democratic primary. Um, I swear and, I'm going to vote. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we take them at their word. Um, Scouts and, honor. Oh, wait. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, the, Too soon. Yeah, the thing I would say is interesting about this is, you know, the, the field dates here, this is really deep, diving deep, were more controversial from the pollsters' perspective than they had been before because there's a, there's a little bit of a, a dilemma. Do you want to, you know, push back your survey until the period of early voting so that you're clear of the Iowa and New Hampshire and maybe get a cleaner shot at how those things affect Texans? Or do you put them up front, um, you know, and, and you run the risk of maybe overstating or understating somebody's support because we asked them before Iowa. Almost you anything know. you do at this point is measuring an object in motion. Though, right? Exactly. And the object in motion here I would submit is Joe Biden. And the question is whether Joe Biden has fallen off of a cliff and therefore our picture is him midway down the cliff or whether in fact you think that, uh, you know, whatever damage had occurred had already occurred. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're actually picking him up kind of where he is in a real sense. So, um, you know, just to, for those of you who haven't had an opportunity to look at the poll, we've got Bernie Sanders at 24%, Joe Biden at 22%, Elizabeth Warren at 15%, Michael Bloomberg at 10 and uh, Amy Klobuchar at 3 I skipped over a couple candidates, so this obviously <laughs> does not... Buttigieg was 7 Yeah, Buttigieg was 7 right. 7 yeah. sorry. Um, He's just a mayor. He's short. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I, I think, you know, so there are a couple of questions. Um, is, is Biden, and Biden at 22%, is significantly lower than we've had him. I mean, I think we've had him in the high 20s. Yeah, he was at 23 he, last he, time. Oh, is he? Okay. He's, so been, he's been basically kind of flat. So, but I, I would also say, though, that we in the past, we haven't pushed people on a preference. So when we say he's at, at, at 23, I think that's with a considerably higher number of undecideds or haven't thought enough about it. Um, yeah. But do we really think that Biden's at 22% right now? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. That's so it looks like the objects in motion are Bernie Sanders on the way up, Biden seems at, at best flat, and, and Warren slipping a little bit. And then we've got a new guy on the screen 
who was not on the screen last literally time on the screen, him. right? Yeah, you know, Bloomberg <laughs> wasn't a candidate last time we polled in October. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things. It's obviously one of the interesting stories nationally right now, and even you know from an academic sense. I mean, we've always known money helps. <laughs> money helps. <laughs> this is this is an interesting edge case. <laughs> I'll take the T-shirt for that. Money you know, helps. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, you know. You have to be pretty interested in that, I think. And I think in this whole thing about motion, I mean, we've talked about it a lot. I mean, I think that the real questions about whether, you know, Biden was ever really, you know, on a, cl you know, on a cliff or whatever metaphor we want to use, right. or whether he's just been sort of exposed as never as strong as people thought he was going to be. Yeah, you know, I really like that description of it, right? I mean, there's this idea that his Biden... You, Josh. Well, no, it's a really good one. I mean, there's this <laughs> idea, there's been this question of, is this, you know, the signs of Biden collapsing and stuff? And it's sort of like, no, because he's he's been running in place since he started. And that's the thing. It is more of exposure than collapse because it's not as though his, his you know, overall support has changed throughout the poll. And I think you're right. I mean, there's probably, if we were to have forced earlier, maybe we would see a little bit more of a decline in his support, but probably only a little bit. And, you know, I think, you know, the other piece of this is that, this race is still, in some ways, I mean, it's going to get less and less fluid as more delegates get allotted, and the you know the actual number and the actual number of candidates that could claim the nomination starts to dwindle more and more. But I think you know I still see the Bloomberg effect as kind of interesting in that you know his ability to come in, spend a bunch of money, and instantly get about ten percent of the electorate is to some degree again a factor of spending a ton of money, but it's also an effect of the fact that there are so many candidates and people are still not locked in. Well, that's, right. the, that's the problem. I mean, I agree with Josh that you're going to continue to see flux nationally and across the states as, as people vote. There's not much time for flux in Texas. People are voting now. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so the notion that, um, you know, what's happening out in the rest of the country is going to dramatically influence Texas, I, I think time is, is not only running out, I think it's run out on that. Um, and my suspicion is that Bloomberg is probably a little higher than this currently. Um, and that's just given my sense of what the media environment has been in the wake of Iowa right. and New Hampshire. And it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it's, it is a test case in the power of money to reach less engaged, less involved voters at a time when I agree with Josh that the commitment to any one candidate here is pretty, yeah. you know, a lot pretty, of noise of the lines, here. pretty contextual. Yeah, and I, I do yeah. think that's different than in, in say South Carolina, where I think Biden actually has, I think people have sort of missed this a little bit. I, I think his commitment is not just a function of being, Obama's vice president. I mean, I think right. he's, he's actually had a presence in South Carolina. You know, he did Fritz Hollings' eulogy. He was good friends with Strom Thurmond. He's been there quite a few. I, I actually expect that's Biden a, to do that's a great That's that, a great campaign that's a nice, slogan. That's a good right. calling Joe card. Joe Biden, good friends with Strom Thurmond. I say in an open <laughs> primary, I don't think it hurts you in South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, um, fair enough. Right. Interesting. So um, we had three things kind of happen while we were in the field. We got out of the field right before New Hampshire. We had the Iowa caucuses while this was in the field. Kind of early the, in the field a, period, yeah. A debate where Klobuchar did remarkably well and an impeachment thing. Yeah, um, the Senate vote was... So, so uh, it didn't look like, from, from what I saw, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but it didn't look like the numbers changed significantly over the course of the poll while we were in the field. Is that... Am I... Yeah, there weren't clear signals. Right. I mean, so it's not like we had a, a set of answers on the first day that were remarkably different from the last day. Well, I mean, there's a couple. I mean, there's a couple things going on to, in reference to a few of those. I mean, one, you know, out of Iowa, there wasn't a clear signal, right? I mean, to the ex to the extent you know we were in the field and then Iowa happened, that was something right. that we we had 
you know, there's a limited amount of calendar space really to fit the poll in sort of within a reasonable frame of time. Right. Yeah, there, I mean, there was no good space. There was no good space. <laughs> right, and, and right. you know, I mean, in a weird way, Iowa kind of broke our way, <laughs> like as far as pollsters go, because if someone had come out and it was like, you know, Joe Biden runs away with the Iowa caucus or anybody, put anybody's name in there, we'd be worried about what happens with the people we pulled before Iowa and the people we pulled after. Well, when we look at the data, there's not really any difference because there's no clear signal. Nobody came away from that saying, oh, this is now so-and-so's race to right. lose. Right. And so as I said, that kind of broke our way, yeah. which not was nice. Not that we had anything to do with that. Right. Yeah. We're just saying. <laughs> just saying. You guys hacked Iowa? <laughs> so as soon as they figure out who they're finally going to blame, do you have, we want to send them a thank you. Are you a member yeah. of an organization called Shadow? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. So I'm, I'm curious about impeachment because there were some numbers in here that were uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Trump's reelect number is statistically the same, but it slipped a little bit numerically from 50-50 Yes, I'd reelect him. No, I wouldn't. To 48, 52, same, same. Pretty intense on both sides, actually. 40%, I think, said absolutely we'll vote to reelect him. 48 or 9%. 47%, definitely someone uh, else. Said definitely will not, which aren't great numbers for a Republican president in what's supposed to be a Republican state. But in the head to heads, he was marginally ahead of everybody, but the races were pretty close. It ranged between, I think, two and five or two and six. Yeah, yeah but this, you know, at this point, we're not, we're not forcing people. And by force, I mean, you know, we're not, we're not taking people who say they're not sure who they're going to vote for, we're not pushing them. We're also not screening. We're, we're very far out from the election. We expect it to be a very high turnout race. And at this point, we're asking registered voters this question we so see. So we're not trying to determine whether you're a likely voter or not? Not at this point. Right. And I think part of that is, you know, to some degree, I mean, it's a it's an honest reflection of uncertainty. It's a reflection of where we are in the campaign. And the uncertainty is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of flux going on in the Democratic primary, both for president and for Senate here. So before we can even start to begin to think about, you know, how mobilized Democrats are going to be, how counter-mobilized Republicans might be against any Democratic candidates, it's hard to really push too far down that road because, you know, I mean, I think looking at these numbers, you get very, very different combinations at the top of the ticket on the Democratic side. Right. There's two, two quick points, one technical, one substantive. The technical point is that the, the problem with the likely voter, first of all, in this day and age, if you agree to do a poll, our sense is you're probably a likely voter. But, <laughs> but beyond that, if there is a bias with respect to who's engaged right now and who attitudinally would say, I'm interested, I'm involved, I'm committed to voting, and, and therefore would get through a likely voter screen, tend to be these attitudinal questions. We, we think it's more likely the Democrats would be engaged and kind of focused on the race right now than Republicans. Now, actually, they're Because high they have a race. Because they have a race. Right. And, the, you know, yeah. Republicans. So, so if you go to a likely voter screen now, well, then in November when Republicans get engaged, you know, you're, all of a sudden Republicans get into the likely voter pool and you're like, aha, Trump is surging. Well, not really. Um, you know, his right. sort of predictable yeah. supporters kind the, of the voters got finally enthused. figured out there was right. an election yeah. in November. The, I, the, yeah. the, the substantive point real quick. Yeah is that um, even though these differences are, you know, it's, it's a tight race in Texas, as, as, as Jim and Josh mentioned, but we continue to find that Bernie Sanders actually, you know, for a, a candidate who seems to be on the, on the wrong side of the electability equation, at least according to experts, he continues to poll as good or better as the, the other potential candidates. And we can argue about whether that would change, but we found that again in this poll. Again, small differences, but right. Bernie's actually closer to the top of that list than the bottom, which is a pretty consistent finding. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, two things to sort of follow up on that. I mean, I think, you know, one thing you're seeing in terms of the sort of to be, uh, you know, activated mobilization Republicans, you see that in the reelect number, right? 
right? So for for Democrats, you know, the choice between am I definitely going to you know vote to reelect Donald Trump? Am I definitely going to vote for someone else? Well, they know they're voting against Donald Trump, so that's right. where you get to the forty seven percent no problem. For Republicans, you know, right now it's Donald Trump versus. Right. And it's a little bit more of an open question. It could be Donald Trump versus Tulsi Gabbard. Not really, but I mean, it could be. And then maybe some people make a different decision. And so, I mean, I think, you know, if we, we keep asking this question, it's not going to be surprising to see Donald Trump's reelect numbers tick up. And that might not even be a reflection of anything he does or says. It can just be a reflection of the fact that the race becomes. Well, settled. and it could be a reaction to whoever the Democrat is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <clears throat> so um, impeachment didn't seem to, and this is a little echoes Clinton a little bit, impeachment didn't seem to hurt. Trump at all. No. I mean, his numbers look pretty, you know, you know, a little little tiny bit among independents. Right. Yeah. But even that I'm not, I wouldn't bet the farm on. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The end numbers we had just to compare to October, 2019, which Mm -hmm. is last time we asked this based on what, you know, do you think Donald Trump has taken actions while president that justifies removal from office before the end of his term? Uh, 43% said yes in October, 43% yes in our survey. Um, In October, 44% said no. Now, 46% say no. Same, same. Yeah. Uh, with all the, you know, <laughs> sort of talking about this, it's, we want information, we want witnesses, we want to hear what these guys have to say, but we already know what we think. Um, right. <laughs> well, and it speaks, to, I mean, I think it speaks to, you know, what I think a lot of people are talking about right now, which is there's a, a very, you know, they're divided media channels, right? And so for Democrats who are engaged in this, they can watch MSNBC all day and get a version of events that comports with their pre-existing viewpoints. And for Republicans, they can go to Fox News and see the same thing. And so- A version of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, their own, the different version of the same thing, but their own version of it. And so- Or or something else. Or something else. (laughs) But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's not as though I think a lot of people came to this with an open mind. Right. Right? One, One thing that was interesting was- this is especially true on rating Republicans in mm-hmm. Congress. It's not so much that the approved, disapproved number changed, it's the intensity. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in, uh, we went from 29% strongly disapprove of the Republicans in Congress in, in October, 41% strongly disapprove now, 9% approved strongly in October, 20% approved strongly now. And so there's, there's and, this. And like, like, likely, I mean, Mitch McConnell's strong approval went from 8% to 15%, and that was driven by Republicans. Right. right. So there, are, right. there were effects, but they didn't necessarily accrue to Trump directly. Right, right. Yeah. We have a reader question or a listener question. If the economy remains buoyant through the campaign cycle, is Trump vulnerable on something else? Uh, we asked a series of questions about uh, trade policy, economics. Yeah. Um, and he was a few points higher. The only place where he was 50 was the economy, which kind of comports with the conventional wisdom. That, right. You know, uh, you know, at least one point for sure that he's getting better marks on the economy because the macroeconomic indicators are pretty good. Yep. Um, you know, I think it's an open question. I mean, I think people that, mo- you know, the people that are really sort of doing the modeling on all this, you know, the typical thing we expect is that there'll be some kind of relationship between presidential approval and assessment of the and these macroeconomic indicators, yeah. I think this is going to be a test of that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've already hit a test of that. I mean, the thing that's sort of well, the twenty twenty election will be a test yes, twenty yeah. no, but but I mean, I think but I think we hit a test of that already in some ways, which is you know going into twenty sixteen. I think you know as a pollster, we 
a lot of, I mean, I know I did, but I also feel like a lot of people did sort of ignored negative economic evaluations among Republican voters as just like mere partisanship, right? Is right. that, you know, this is a Democratic president, yeah. so therefore the economy's bad. Democrats said the economy was good in 2015. And again, we, you know, you can go to our website and you'll see the trend lines on this over time and among partisan groups, because we've been asking this question since 2009 about the quality of the economy. And we thought, you know, oh, that's just partisanship. Well, you know, but then you had a bunch of independents and a bunch of Republicans turn out for Donald Trump. And, you know, and then what happened after that? Views of the economy flipped. And all of a sudden, Republicans say the economy is doing great and Democrats say it's doing terrible. Right. Literally between October of 2015, no, of 2016 right. and February of 2017, partisans flipped their opinion on the economy. So the relationship between the economy and voting is going to be tested. Well, I think you know. You know, there's there's kind of three different components right. there, though, right? There's, you know, macroeconomic indicators. You know, what's your, you know, are you looking at growth? Are you looking at, you know, very, and then there's basically assessments of the economy, right. which are super fungible, right? Yeah. And then presidential approval and how those things work together. Yeah, I, I, what I'm talking about. I tend to think that Trump is just such an overriding factor in this election that everything, you know, all roads seem to lead. Trump, right, you know? all the other spices don't really matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, the one all thing roads I, lead to Mar-a-Lago. You know why? Because it's very close to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like that. I like that. The, 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 one, so the one thing, just real quickly, that, that I thought it was interesting is the last couple of days, there's these two tracks the Democrats seem to be operating on. One is the, the Obama people pushing back on who really deserves credit for the economy. Right. And then other Democrats saying, well, the economy's not really that great. And what'll be interesting is to watch, right. can you... Can you reconcile these two separate critiques or narratives right. in a way right. that makes this sense? This is going to be driven people? by manufacturing capacity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm interested in that, and, and I'm always interested in narratives, and I'll be, I'll be interested to see if one becomes dominant or if they're able to meld these into something coherent. Uh, let's do the Senate race very quickly. It looks like a race of people nobody really knows yet. And, I mean, it looks extremely volatile just because of the number of people that either haven't decided and or have not heard of the candidates, you know, makes it kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always tough, I mean, for Democrats in Texas to introduce themselves especially. And I only single out the Democrats because often for Republicans, they're launching from another position or from a position of strength, whether it be, you know, usually a resource strength, whether, you know, a lot of money or something. Uh, you know, and, and for these candidates, you know, they're sort of trying to fight through the noise of a Democratic presidential nominating contest. They're fighting through the noise of impeachment. And they're still in this huge, huge state. I think, and they all start from a low baseline. And they also will I mean, also start from, I mean, almost zero. I mean, even the most known of the candidates <clears throat> are really only known regionally. And so, I mean, I think that's, you know, really challenging. I mean, the one thing I think about this poll that's a little bit, I mean, I think one thing in this poll is, I mean, going into this, I wasn't sure about who to expect necessarily in the runoff. I mean, Hager was a good bet, just simply because of the DCCC endorsement and she all the money, money she's raising. She's probably going to advertise more. Right? right, and she is. And so, I, you know, there was mm -hmm. that possibility, but I sort of wasn't sure about, you know, whether the regional appeals of like a Royce West in Dallas, Fort Worth potentially, or Amanda Edwards in Houston would maybe be able to overcome that uh, sort of just resource advantage. But I think like in this, in this poll, I mean, I'd be surprised if she's not at least one of the two runoff candidates, just not only because of her numbers here being about you know twice as much as the second place candidate, but when you start to look at the top presidential candidates' supporters and see who they would support in the Senate race, she's usually the plurality candidate amongst all the top getting uh, Democratic presidential candidates. So I think if, the, if you think about the people coming out and choosing. Yeah, something has worked for her. I mean, because I was looking, yeah. I mean, not that I would bank a lot on this, but I was looking just 
the hell of it at the Google Trends data last night for the four hours going up to the end of the debate. Mm-hmm. And she had much higher peaks than everyone else by a pretty, just eyeballing it by a pretty noticeable amount. Now, I wouldn't, you know, make policy based right. on that or bet on that. But, you know, in the context of all what you're talking about, yeah. I think it's a thing. She, she probably has the best chance of being the candidate outside of Texas who people have heard of because she was sort of a national story. Not the national story, but a national story during the last cycle. Yeah. So um, before our next topic, we've got a couple more TripCast sponsors to thank. A new partnership between the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation and UT Austin will provide support to thousands of UT students with financial need. More at utforme.utexas.edu. And the Bankers Association represents about 500 banks across Texas. Learn why Texas banks are the heart of the community at texasbankers.com. There was a lot in here about um, immigration and border security, which I guess we can start with as continuing to be the most important problem cited by Texas voters uh, facing the state. This is it's the same record that we've been playing for, right. for 10, 10 years. years. Right? Yeah, right. I mean, across the scope of this poll, which um, you know we have been doing for... 12 years, 13 years? Well, 10, 10? yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, 10 years. And uh, we started essentially at the height or the, the low water mark of the recession. And one of the first things we all, the three of us commented on, four of us actually, was uh, the economy and jobs at that point was basically on par with immigration and border security as the most important issue facing the state of Texas. And what's happened in the 10 years since then is that the economy and jobs has faded and border security and immigration remains right. uh, this really kind of powerful issue. Yeah, and I think as we talk, as we go, you know, as we get into the teeth of this election, I think you have to notice the difference and kind of salience of these issues for partisans, right? I mean, this remains a front and center issue for Republicans, and I think that's, you know, it's good for for Trump and the agenda and the kind of rhetorical focus that he uses Mm -hmm. because it's not only salient, it pushes in the same direction, you know, no matter what measure you look at. They're in line with Trump's rhetoric and Trump's orientation at the at the voting level on all, virtually every item, and actually every item in this particular poll, whether it's refugee resettlement, uh, legal immigration, illegal immigration, deportation, all depor- of that yeah, stuff, right? all of that stuff is really pointing in the same direction. And as you look at a Democratic campaign where their focal issue, aside from Trump, is health care, and there are deep divisions within. The Democratic Party about what the approach to health care should be. Right. You know, this is a pretty it's a it's a pretty good result if you're a Republican candidate because you know where to go, at least in the short term. We can talk about long term and whether it's good policy or bad policy. Right. But everything's pointing, you know, it's it's not dissonant within the party. Is this more interesting in some ways in the in the Senate race? I mean, in the presidential race, you have to run 49 other states, and so this may or may not be the main issue in those states. I'm curious if you're looking at this as a Senate candidate from either party, if you're seeing something here to frame a to frame a statewide race. It's a federal race. It's the same issues. You know, I, I think, honestly, I mean, to tie this back, I was going to try to actually tie this back to the elections, too. I mean, first, I think about the presidential contest in the sense that, you know, those the sort of small gaps between Trump and the potential Democratic candidates. I think this is a good sort of example of why those are probably pretty conservative estimates in some ways in terms of his his lead. And it's because, you know, Immigration and border security is an issue that unites Republicans of all stripes, and it makes it a little bit easier because you know this is the top issue. If we looked at immigration and border security, or the, or the most important problem just among Republicans, 
it'd be close to a majority in this state would say immigration or border security is the top issue. Democrats don't have that, right? It's healthcare, it's climate change, it's gun control, it's Trump. And then there's differences within about, uh, you know, how far to go on those issues and the, and the relative salience of each. And so that's sort of the difficulty the Democrats right. face. I mean, for Republicans, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit easier. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a call you can make to, to all members of the party and also up and down the ballot. So John Cornyn loses nothing by talking about immigration and border security in Texas, and he'll be in line with the president. Right. And they'll be talking to the same voters. For Democrats, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're talking about the Senate race. It is kind of hypothesizing something there, which is like, does this counter-mobilize potential Democratic voters? Maybe. Or is it a particular vulnerability for the Democrats who are trying to take on Cornyn? Well, it depends on your theory of the race. I mean, and I think this fundamentally kind of comes down to also another difficulty in Texas is that, you know, do Democrats, one, you know, assuming Democrats maintain where they got in 2018. Let's just start there. Let's just, right. You know, the question is, do they do a little bit better than that or do they stay there? And I think part of the theory around that revolves around, well, are they going to bring moderate, you know, white voters in Texas back into the fold somehow? Or is it about mobilizing sort of low propensity voters, people, you know, like basically non-white voters, people with lower of lower socioeconomic status and, and young, voters. young voters and young voters, which right. well, and a lot of those overlap with each other. And part of it is, you know, is immigration and border security the issue that does that? And let me know, let me sound or, a, you know, the, the response to that. Yeah, right. let, let me let me take that argument and, and drive it home as forcefully as I can. Oh, I think please. Josh is saying this is not a great issue. I think it's a terrible issue as it's emerging in the context of the 2020 election cycle for Democrats. Yeah. And the reason isn't that... Right. That this was kind of why I asked the question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, doesn't uh, this expose no. the yeah, vulnerability? I think, I, I, I think on border security... Traditionally, you've looked at border security as an issue where Republicans have an advantage because, especially in Texas, people think secure border and, um, you know, enforcing immigration laws is a good right. thing. And, but immigration... And what to do with, you know, the millions of people who are already here. That's the divisive issue amongst Republicans. And, and it's, it's always been sort of our opinion looking at the data that if Democrats are going to frame this issue in a way that helps them, it's to focus on how come you can't reform the system. You guys have had the keys to the House for a long time. You haven't done anything. You know, you seem to be frozen on this. Right. And I think if that were the way it were presented in the Democratic primary, that would be really interesting to talk purely about what to do with the immigration, you know, immigrants who are here right now. But the way it's evolved in the context of the Democratic primaries, it's been about abolishing ICE. It's been about, you know, it, it's, it's been framed in a way, and it, this is understandable yeah. given the Twitterverse and the notion that you have to appeal to constituents who are a little, right. less, you know, hardcore progressive and liberal. Um, you know, maybe Hager or whoever emerges from the Democratic primary can reframe it, but defending sanctuary cities and defending uh, proposals to abolish ICE, that's not going to play well in Texas. It's just not. So yeah. I, I think that... It, that well, I mean, I, I think I think it plays okay in a Democratic primary, but it's actually right. not come up as much as it. I mean, I right. think it was being discussed those kinds of things, the abolish ICE. That was all I think in the earlier differentiating phase of the Democratic primary. To be fair, it was mostly Kamala Harris and Cory Booker who, but you know, I hated the elect. Yeah. You know, but I haven't I, heard that much about East that Castro, about yeah. that stuff lately, and I, it didn't seem to come up much at all. Yeah. Near as I could. Penetrate I mean, the fog of the debate I mean, this last is, night. Yeah, I mean, this is three-dimensional chess. I mean, I agree with you in part. There's a three-dimensional chess aspect to this, which is that, you know, it's definitely been the case that Democratic attention, Democratic voter attention to the border and immigration, border security has increased in the Trump era as there's been more focus on that issue and obviously more focus on the border. And so, I mean, we do see that. Now, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden they think, let's, you know, let's crack down, let's send ICE into the cities and start <laughs> rounding people up. I mean, that's clearly not what's going on. Uh, but, you know, it's never been clear in our 
in our polling that, you know, and even if you look at sort of, you know, Hispanics in, in Texas, Hispanic voters, young Hispanic voters, that they're universally liberal on immigration policy. I think that, you know, so that's just to say, well, just to put that out there. Right. Yeah, well, and but, we know that older Hispanics in many and, cases are not. Right, and, but the challenge, you know, I think in some ways for Republicans on this is that, you know, they're gonna have to follow Trump wherever he goes on the right. immigration border security issue. And he's, you know, exhibited that's a willingness to go pretty far. And so while Democrats may, again, in the differentiation phase have been, you know, let's say floating potential ideas is sort of, you know, the counter to that. Right. Trump will definitely be pushing this issue because it's one of his greatest hits. I mean, there's no way he's not going to be pushing immigration and border security in this election. And, and where a, he goes. And he's a blunt instrument on it. And we did see that he hit the yeah. limits of Republican support here because all of a sudden, I mean, following what Darren was saying earlier to some extent, we watched this issue and it was unbelievably predictable in both you know, the extent of salience, who it was salient, and what the direction of partisans were right. until we hit, you know, the family, family separation on the border mm -hmm. year, year and a half right. ago. And then all of a sudden, we started seeing divisions among Republicans. Split families, kids in cages. And, the, yep. right. and, 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 I mean, and we saw yep. Republicans at the statewide in Texas start getting a little nervous, I and that, think, and publicly. That, and that's going to be an ads. Yeah. I right. mean. So uh, we've run the clock. There's a, a time for a quick take on what, uh, as you were looking through the poll, you know, over the last week, what jumped out at you? What did you notice that, you know, just I'll whatever say, in here? I'll say quickly, because I, I know we're short on time, but I would say the healthcare items where we found Texans. Dang it, Jim, that was ours. We found Texans, <laughs> you know, divided. You know, 46% uh, support the current system. 41% uh, wanted a universal health care, but then when you drill down into universal health care, and say, do you, you know, want to get rid of your large, largely, you know, largely that's the position of Democrats. You know, very few Republicans want that, though some. But among, but among those Democrats, about a fifth don't want to abolish private health insurance right. at all. And, you know, completely, they want both. They want the Medicare, Medicare for all who want it in a way. So it's sort of the public option right? thing, right? And that's you know, that's a big problem that we're seeing play out for Democrats. Here, it was, you know, the split was evident last night in the Senate debate. It's evident, it's been evident in the national, maybe in, evident in, in, in the, the national, debate tonight, you know, so. presidential debate. It's, It'll be in the debate tonight if they stop kicking Bloomberg. Well, there's a, there's a Nevada, or, uh, Nevada, sorry, Nevada um, union issue here. Right, you know, exactly. The Sanders is having trouble with this issue in right. Nevada, et cetera. So that's right. my. So, Josh. You know, uh, in the intersection of sort of policy and also the elections going a little down ballot, we asked about uh, property taxes and education quality. Uh, and, you know, basically under the assumption that given, given that basically the entirety of the last session was devoted to property tax reform and the twin issue of education financing, we want to see where people are on this at this point. So we asked a question that we asked at the beginning of last session, the end of last session, and then now, which is basically do you pay too much too, or do Texans pay too much too little or the right amount of property taxes? And we assume this is an issue that, you know, Republican, especially Republican legislators are probably uh, trumpeting in their own primaries as something that they did. Well, unsurprisingly, you know, voters aren't really noticing anything yet. Now, partially it's, it takes a long time for this to happen, number one. Number two, uh, you know, they could have their property taxes lowered and then their property values could go up and they could basically be paying the same thing. And number three, it's also an article of faith that we pay too much in taxes here. So right. Basically, in this poll, 54% of Texans said they pay too much. The Texans pay too much in property taxes. At the end of the legislative session, it was 60%. At the beginning of the legislative session, it was 58%. Has not moved. Education quality, 5% said it's excellent in Texas. At the beginning of the legislation, le legislative session, 42% said it's good. 7% at the end of the session, 7% today. 
no movement in terms of ratings of the quality education system or the amount of, tax, of property taxes that Texans pay. But right. that can't be right because the legislators said that they've achieved a lot at the end of the session. Are it, you sure? Could you check well, that again? Well, we also had a majority <laughs> who said that you should be spending more on education. That's, that's actually uh, Well, I was going to go with the Yang-Trump ballot, which I think we were all waiting for. <laughs> yeah, let's hear this. But events have overtaken that. So let, two quickies real as, as they were within suggested. the margin, we exactly. should just say. Yeah. It was great. Um, you are off message, sir. I know. I, <laughs> I have my finger right on the pulse of uh, my students. Um, 50% said we're spending too little on uh, primary and secondary education. So our, our conservative state, in the aftermath of the legislature doing what they did, we still get half saying we're not spending enough. And then uh, on the ballot side of things, after we asked the Democratic primary stuff and the head-to-heads, Trump versus all the field, uh, the last thing we asked is about voting in the congressional race. And we got to very early, et cetera. 46% said Democrat, 43% Republican. Uh, you know, the fact that, of course, it's margin of error. Of course, it will move around. But the generic Democratic congressional candidate being that competitive is something that's got to really concern Republican strategies moving forward, I think. There's somebody out there whose initials I won't include that will say, hey, there's too many Democrats in the sample. What do you say to that? Well, everybody says that. We'll, we'll just reiterate something we've said a gazillion times, which is um, party identification is an, is an attitude. It's not a fixed characteristic. And the notion that, um, you know, for instance, nationally, we hear this all the time. We have more Democrats than Republicans in your national samples. That's because there are more Democrats than Republicans in our national samples. In Texas, there's slightly more Republicans than Democrats traditionally. What's the distribution well, we tend to? Well, and I'll just say, and we don't sample Democrats and Republicans. Right. We don't start and say this is the this is the share <laughs> of the, uh, this is the sample. share of the final <laughs> right. population that should right. be Democrats. We actually say, okay, here's what registered voters look like in terms of age, race, these other characteristics, and then they're going to come in and they're going to tell us because it's an attitude how they identify, and then we see what happens. And so, okay, I got one that's very very quick. Uh, we stick in uh, information questions at the end of the poll, <laughs> and uh, one of them was, "Who's armed forces won the Battle of the Alamo?" Um, <laughs> Uh, 10% said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. 6% said the United States of America, which was not a participant in that particular <laughs> battle. Um, 28% thought the Texans won it, even though they were all killed. And 56% correctly said Mexico. The majority. Well, well, when you oh. said one, Ross, what did, what did you mean by that, really? <laughs> Lived to tell the tale. <laughs> that's, that's all the time we have, thank God. Um, <laughs> thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to CPS Energy, Raise Your Hand, Texas, the University of Texas at Austin, and the Texas Bankers Association, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Josh, Jim, Darren, and our producers, Michael Ray and Megan, this is Ross. Thanks for listening.